tonight we're diving into unit six chapter three of deborah rayburn's amazing textbook nutrition 101 choose life a family nutrition and health program i'm working out of the third edition everybody has you know whatever various editions we have and we're just book studying our way through with two chapters left i can't believe it tonight and next week that's so that's crazy uh Today is all about diabetes. I'm so glad that Sabrina is here too, so she can weigh in on her experience and comments and things that she's learned because she's done probably the most research of any one of us in, in the group on this subject. Thank you for being here, Sabrina. <laughs> so this is, this is also personally affects me as a number of my relatives have or have had type 2 diabetes. So I know that we can change the, um, you know, we're not simply subjected to the history of our family's health. You know, if you go to the doctor's office and they say, you know, does anyone in your family have a history of, and you have to fill out, you know, my cousin, my uncle, you know, all that stuff. And something really interesting that they found is when you are adopted, you inherit the tendencies of your adoptive family. So people sometimes say, oh, we can't have closed adoptions. I'm not pro or against closed or open. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm just saying some people say we can't have closed adoptions because I need to know what about my family history or, you know, my mom won't tell me who my real dad was and I need to know my family medical history. And what's interesting is that, um, maybe it doesn't even matter in a way because the majority of our afflictions seem to be environmental. So the way I have heard it explained in some ways is that um, you may have a genetic marker that makes you more predisposed to something that can be picked up over the course of life. This is different than something you're born with. Like Caden, for instance, Sabrina, he was born with it. That's different than somebody who picks up, you know, something later on in life. Um, but um, your markers may make you more predisposed to something, but your environment is actually what determines if the markers are turned on or off. And so by affecting the way we choose to live, we can actually impact our dispositions towards things. This is simultaneously empowering and also daunting information because it does throw a lot of responsibility back on our personal choices, which is not always the most comfortable position to be in because it can be kind of nice to say, well, this is just my fate. Um, there is, I still think quite a significant amount of, you know, these are my genetics that we can sort of say, for instance, some things may be more challenging or difficult for you based on the genetic heritage you are given that for somebody else is very easy. And so I'm not saying it's more difficult or easy for somebody. I'm just saying a lot of the responsibility tends to get bounced back onto us, which is contrary to postmodernism where, you know, um, I am an isolated nuclear unit. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it's fine. And I 
don't want to take responsibility for anything <laughs> and I have no convictions. I only have opinions, you know, that it's like crazy how connected our, um, our worldview perspective is to just everything. It affects everything in our life. So taking back some responsibility and some ownership for our health, obviously that all of us that are studying this book together, we've all chosen to do that. And many, many, many other people besides who are doing all kinds of things to take responsibility, you know, something as small as changing out the brand of toothpaste that you use can be a very significant step because a lot of times we don't exactly know what our genetic markers are. I know you can get tests for these things, um, but not everybody really even wants to know and not everybody has the money to go through that testing. So just assuming <laughs> kind of like when we read about the cardiovascular system and they say, you know, eat broccoli for this. And then you read about, you know, your circulatory system or something else and find that you were affecting that by eating the broccoli for the other thing, you know, we can choose, you know, maybe you're aware of, I'm aware of my possible predisposition towards type two diabetes. So I choose to do things that may help me avoid that. This could also end up affecting other markers that I am unaware of that may never show up for me in my life because I was trying to affect what I knew about. So I hope that we all feel, you know, sufficiently worried about <laughs> having to take our own responsibility, not worried in a bad sense, but like concerned in the sense of just understanding that what we're doing is significant and what you choose to um, put on your kid's plate or your own plate. You know, these are, these are powerful choices that we have and symbolic of so much more than just, you know, what tastes good. It's also symbolic of you know, your future, your children's future and all the healthy lifestyle choices that descend from that. All right. So there are two types of diabetes. Um, well, no, she actually lists several, but, um, type one immune mediated type two insulin resistant diabetes. Um, Sabrina, is it mellitus? 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 I don't know how to say it. If I knew how to pronounce most of these things, I haven't heard the doctor say them. I just read about it. I think yeah. it's the, it might be this. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and the, the, the blah, then the third is gestational diabetes, which can occur during some pregnancies. Diabetes, Deborah Rayburn tells us, is defined as high levels of blood glucose resulting in defects in insulin production, insulin action, or both. Basically, it is too much sugar or glucose in the blood. The disease can lead to serious health complications and premature death. Adults, children, and pregnant women share many similar symptoms, an unusual thirst, frequent desire to urinate, blurred vision, and a feeling of being tired most of the time without any apparent reason. So it's definitely something that we um, either want to avoid getting, or if we're born with it, we want to make sure that we're managing it um, they used to call it sugar sickness. Isn't that what they call it in the uh, Outlander when she goes to the French hospital or whatever? And they're like, she has sugar sickness. <laughs> um, celiac and um, they call it something else before. What do they call it? Um, I can't remember what they used to call celiac. It had some funny name, kind of like sugar sickness, but about bread and sugar sickness. Those used to be things that we didn't understand. 
at all. So about the bread, there's no bread sickness. Ah, so people would die from celiac because they would, um, you know, be starving to death, um, and people weren't realizing what it was that was, you know, that was as simple as eliminating bread from their diet, you know. And since it runs in families, families could lose multiple children to this. Um, and that's one of the things where we just have to be so grateful for the researchers and uh, modern science for, you know, learning about these things that oftentimes can be managed with our diet if we just know what the mechanism is. And they're not as scary as they were back in the, you know, the Outlander days or whatever. Um Okay, so complications from diabetes can include serious health problems such as heart disease, blindness, kidney failure, lower extremity amputations. Um, the history of diabetes um, was first um, mentioned in the Ebers Papyrus, which is a medical text written around 1500 BC, which is, it was categorized as a condition of passing too much urine. This is um, also something that we see in the essential oils industry. If you've ever heard of somebody describe their problem using the symptom as the problem, the, the, pr the problem this person had was not passing too much urine, right? That was just his symptom, but that's what disease was known by. And people will come to you all the time when you have oils and ask for something that you know is just a symptom of something that goes farther back. So that's just something to keep in mind it's really important to find root causes, right? Yeah, we are all symptomatic, but you have to keep drilling down, right? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. No, you're not jumping on that right now. Not right now. No, not one time. You can wait till I'm done. Absolutely, Elaine. I agree. Um, so they noticed that diabetes was sweet. So the Latin term mellitus was I don't know how to pronounce it. So if anybody knows, just let me know. This was added in the 18th century. <laughs> so Sabrina, that's why she tasted the urine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in 1776, they discovered the sugar glucose was in the blood. So the reasoning was then formed that diabetic people pass sugar from the blood to the urine. Then in 1889, two German physiologists discovered accidentally that the pancreas was involved. So at this time, to cure people with sugar sickness, they were using bloodletting, opium, and special diets, but typically people just died without help. Then in, Camille, then in 1921, this is not very long ago. Fred, Dr. Frederick Banting discovered isolated groups of cells from the pancreas, and he created an extract that led to the diabetic treatment we use today. So interesting. And it's so crazy how long it took for people to really figure out how to deal with this. I wonder, I wish that there was a way to know, but there's not really a way to know the incidence of it, you know, throughout history, how common was it before? Certainly type two was probably not as common, I'm assuming. Um, but I wonder how much type one occurred. There are many theories about the causes, but nobody actually knows. 
<laughs> Modern questions. Many factors appear to be linked. Genetics, autoantibodies, viruses, fungi, cow's milk, chemicals, man-made drugs, oxygen-free radicals. It's quite a range. And there's quite a few things on there that you can voluntarily avoid. Type 1 diabetes. This is where our immune system mistakenly destroys insulin-producing beta cells of the pancreas. It's called an autoimmune response. Beta cells are the only cells in the body that make the hormone insulin, which regulates blood glucose. There appears to be a hereditary factor for type 1 because it does seem to run in families. Type 1 is also more common in certain racial groups, which again points to genetics. You know, a, a certain common parent farther back in history. And then according to scientists, there is no way to prevent or cure type 1. Um, the genetic factor can be explained by understanding the role of DNA in cells. So there are a set of genes may be responsible for a person more likely to become diabetic. And this is the human leukocyte antigens or HLAs. So there's so many mysteries about um, DNA and genetics and epigenetics and human, um, like, like the tendencies and all these things is so fascinating. And, and our immune system is so little understood in so many ways because it come to, there's so many mysterious things. And type one is one of those things where you say it's, it's an immune system, you know, or autoimmune system related issue. And we just don't know. We don't understand how to turn it on, how to turn it off, or even where they always come from. Yes, Jacob. Okay. We'll go upstairs and eat that piece of French toast on the counter. I just fed them all plates and plates of French toast. <laughs> uh, viruses. Many scientists have made a link between viruses and type one. People have been documented to develop type one diabetes after a viral infection or after viral epidemics. When a virus enters our body, it may change the structure of the antigens on the surface of the islet cells, which alters the appearance of the cell to make it appear to be an invader to the immune system. Um, John Franco Botazzo, who is a diabetes researcher, he believes that diabetes is caused by a slow acting virus that causes our immune system to attack proteins in the pancreas. That's a super interesting theory. I wonder, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's very, very fascinating. Anytime there's anything, you know, diabetes or MS or anything like that, when you start really digging into it, you find all these incredible researchers, people who are dedicating their lives, you know, who are just making these crazy connections. And so many things seem to have been discovered, you know, by accident there, they say, oh, well, he stuck his arm in this, or they accidentally dropped this in that. And you're like, wow, how many things are just waiting to be discovered, but we need to make the mistake to make the discovery. <laughs> Would we say it was a failure if they made a mistake and, and, and made a profound discovery from the result of it? Not at all. Food. Other researchers believe food may play a role in the development of type 1 diabetes. 
children, um, children newly diagnosed with type one were found to have higher amounts of antibodies that recognize a specific protein in cow's milk. Um, Autoantibodies bind to a protein that appears on the surface of insulin producing beta cells in the pancreas after an illness. So some current science indicates that the fat cells of the milk may be the cause of type one diabetes. Um, trying to see if this is actually pertinent. So I don't want to just read her book word for word on, you know, like a recording or something like that. So I'm trying not to read word for word, but this is also interesting that I want to read the whole thing to you. But um, do you know what I wonder, Andrea, if they have identified the protein that shuts it down, why can't they reverse that? I know. I wonder the same thing. And, and that's the thing is, so much of this stuff that when, when you really get into it, like we don't know how to do that, you know? Yeah. Mama was going to say, um, the next part indicates that there's actually, um, an industrial aspect to this um, problem with the milk. What were you going to say, Sabrina? Um, so they can't reverse that. Well, <clears throat> I know lots of people who have had type one diabetes, like they're like very old now and they've had it since they were yeah. kids. And they've all, they, every year they come up with this new like article or research of like, oh, we have this new thing coming and we're about to cure this forever. Yeah. Have you seen the prices of insulin? Yeah. Have you seen the prices? Okay, it's not even just that. Like whenever we get um, supplies. Oh my gosh. Syringes, we have to get tons of syringes because you know, there's single use. Um, let me, this bottle right here is a vial of Novolog, which is what he takes. It's a short-acting insulin. He also takes a long-acting one. This big, gigantic vial is only good for 30 days once you open, once you break the little top off. But there will, you will only use the tiniest little amount out of it. But yet they give you these big bottles and the other one is even longer and you use less. <laughs> um, and not only that, you get that. Then they have the test strips, the meters. There's little poker pieces that go inside the, the poker, like they're separate little needles that you have to change each time. They also want to prescribe you alcohol swabs to swipe over everything. They also want to really push, because they push this for us a lot, is this um, monitor that <clears throat> gets put in like the back of like you know like when you get a shot in your butt where it'd be like that fatty section back there like <laughs> the back of your love the butt area and they put that in there and it has a little piece of wire sort of that goes in and it will and it like um alerts you via your phone or your a little machine that comes through Bluetooth from this child's body or this person's body all the time, whether it's kind of going up or going down. And now I think that despite the fact that like, I don't think it's something, I'm not in love with the Bluetooth thing, but I think if you were trying to, you're wildly out of control with your numbers and things, I think it's a good tool to maybe figure some stuff out because like they kept suggesting it to us because Caden was going like really low all of a sudden at night and then like later he would go like really high and we were kind of just all over the place um we figured out not with that but I figured out um because I kept saying no I'll think about it I'll think about it I'll think about it because I was like bluetooth thing in my kid's body I just yeah. <laughs> um, but don't put that on 
then they also want to push uh, insulin pens. So we use a syringe because he does half units, but they also want to push a pen that is easier. Um, it's not easier. I think it's bigger and bulkier and more like hard to use, but like they push, use this pen, which means not only will you have insulin in a container like this, you will have them in these other tubes that slide into the pen. Then they want to push the pumps and all, there's just a bazillion things. The pump is attached to you all the time and, and will connect your meter and give you insulin throughout the day. Like it makes it like hands-free or like thought-free or whatever, but it's a very like money-centric um, Yeah, no, I did not think about that. There's, and you know, people aren't out people there are saying that they, they, tons and tons of scientists and stuff are coming out saying that they have already cured this like years ago and they're just not doing anything about it because it's a lot of, it's a big money maker. Um, and I hate that, but it really seems to be the case. And I feel like I've also seen a lot of people talk about type two, a lot of things that they could do there, but they're not doing that either because yeah. like, yeah. The medicines that they take there are crazy. Um, so well, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, so, so Elaine's asking, why, why can't we put our back into this and, and figure out this little mechanism? And Sabrina's saying, because it's noted here that in 2014, medical costs associated with and work lost or wages lost due to diabetes were, it was at $245 billion a year industry. That was six years ago. So it's probably only gone up. They had something on Facebook that said that the two people invented insulin, they, they sold it for a dollar to them. They gave the rights away for a dollar because they wanted everybody to have it. And, and the, the companies got a hold of it and are making millions. You know, I think I did see something about that, Camille. I think you're right. Something about, yeah, they didn't want it to be, you know, like my uncle and my grandma were um, like not taking enough insulin. And my uncle twice ended up the um, like ambulances called and everything like that because he wasn't taking his insulin because he was trying to, make it last. And um, that's just because, I mean, here he is on his fixed um, income and somebody out there is just like, let's hike the prices up a little bit more. Let's, let's make more money off of these people who are our permanent customers and can't get out. Right, I, I also wanna say yeah. on the, these vials, after um, 30 days they say that but i can't tell you how many nurses i've told have told me that the, the, like still good nurses are saying it's still good but yet in 30 days you need to throw that out or you need to put that in like the shrimps container to take to the you know bio place or whatever which you have to do um we need you to buy them. And it, thankfully, like with the military, like our stuff is completely covered. But all I can imagine is like when we leave the pharmacy and we have 
like you take a stroller just to fill the stroller with all the bags that they give you because there's so much of this stuff and I can't imagine these people who can't afford this stuff and them going in and trying to make that work it's just and rather rather than say you know let's put some of our investment towards solving this problem then we say well you should just make healthcare free for everybody because then we can support selling this $245 billion a year product to people and, you know, put the guilt on you for not paying for everybody else's rather than us saying we're probably overcharging for the product to begin with. And we should also put some efforts into solving the problem versus perpetuating perpetuating and there's probably less um hue and cry to you know race for the cure for diabetes because it's not a fatal diagnosis it's just you know oh you can manage it with the proper um medication and or lifestyle so people are like not as concerned about something that is taking you know taking people out of their lives um yeah, who knew when you try to talk, who knew, we knew, of course, but who knew when you try to talk about, you know, food and lifestyle and God forbid medicine, it all just becomes, um, you, you very quickly start to realize how much politics and money and power and privilege play into all of these things. Um, so regarding the milk, livestock feed is allowed to contain up to 300 parts per billion of aflatoxin, which is a chemical a carcinogenic chemical secreted by the fungus aspergillus, aspergillus. Sorry, I don't know why there's a big fungus. Um, other studies show that withholding wheat and soy, which may also contain mycotoxins from fungus, will help prevent or delay diabetes. Mycotox- the mycotoxin, acrotoxin, is typically found in corn, barley, and wheat. This is 10 times more toxic than aflatoxin and can, no afflict extreme damage on the human body. Um, Just the usual suspects, no big deal. (laughs) Not to mention livestock, um, you know, if you go to the store and buy milk, um, it milk that comes from factory farms can be from cows who are fed rotting food, rotting bakery pastries. And things like that so they're not good to begin with and they're now worse <laughs> rotting sugary food that is nothing remotely close to the nutritive grass that these ruminants are used to eating okay free radicals oxygen free radicals which are formed as a byproduct of many chemical reactions in the body destroy systems throughout the body in the past our body had ways of stopping that action so (laughs) if you think about your house (laughs) your house is perfectly clean you just had the cleaners literally came so first you did a huge purge your kids went to visit somebody for a week and you and your spouse just purged and sorted you got rid of you know like truckloads everyone's like tell me more about this dream truckloads and truckloads went to the dump and goodwill and and you sold stuff online it's really good then you had the cleaners came through and they just scrubbed your house and it's beautiful and spotless and perfect and then you come in your house and you have dinner and there's dirty dishes on the counter 
How easy is it? Do you feel completely overwhelmed? You know, you and your husband are standing there looking at, you know, your takeout boxes sitting on the counter and the spoons in the sink. Do you feel completely overwhelmed? Do you just sit down and start crying because there's too much to handle? No, you're like, this is easy. In with pleasure, you clean it up. However, if your house looks like this, <laughs> it's already destroyed. You haven't purged in a year. There's just crap piled everywhere. A cat peed behind the couch. You have 16 baskets of laundry to fold and another 16 to wash. There's already dishes mounted up in the sink. Then you have dinner and you, you now add the takeout boxes to the pile and the spoons. Now you're overwhelmed. Now you sit down and cry. <laughs> this is our bodies <laughs> in the modern world. We used to be able to handle some free radical activity. Now, air pollution, diet, water, smoke, and petrochemicals have led to excessive amounts in the human body. Our immune system finds it impossible to contend with everything. It's just, it's too much. You can deal with a couple things. Can't deal with it all. The free radicals overwhelm our body. They can easily attack the islet cells. These are at a disadvantage because of their very low levels of the enzymes that they need to break down the free radicals. Just remember, Gary Young said, enzymes are the most important supplement you will ever take in your life. All right, type two. Type two diabetes accounts for 90 to 95% of all diagnosed cases of diabetes. So that cash cow, that money-making machine, that industry of power, <laughs> usually begins with insulin resistance, a disorder in which cells do not use insulin properly, or there is not enough insulin to go around in the body, which then leads to the high levels of glucose. All the cells in your body contain special proteins called receptors that bind to insulin. This insulin is a key to open the gates or the receptor site on the cell. When type, when type two, there is either a faulty lock or a malfunctioning insulin receptor. The key doesn't open the lock. The glucose can't get in. Type two diabetic cells are starving, even though the person might be eating constantly. In some diabetics, the beta cells in the pancreas do not produce enough insulin. It's thought that after many years of working overtime to overproduce insulin, the pancreas begins to burn out. So genes, how do our genes affect this? Well, I only wear yoga pants, so. <laughs> our genes affect it. Um, many of the same factors attributed to type one are the same for type two. Diabetic families seem to pass down diabetes from generation to generation. Can you hear the kids? Are they pretty loud for you? They're upstairs, but the vents down here just go straight through the floor because the wood stove is the heater. So like if the wood stove is going, then the heat's being pushed up through the vents. So you can hear the kids playing upstairs. Um, so don't come down here and have like a private conversation because they will hear everything you say. Um, the reachers have identified a protein that shuts down the insulin receptor um, that creates insulin resistance and is found in most people with type 2 diabetes. 
Obesity may also play a role in di diabetes. This is the most common trigger that leads to type two. And obesity is defined as weighing more than 20% over a desirable body weight, which you cannot get that desirable body weight off the BMI scale. You have to, you know, there's more to it than that. Um, three, fourths, so three, three quarters of all people with type two either are or have been obese. Health statistics from 2012 reveal that 34.9 million Americans are obese. Other factors are age, specifically the elderly and lifestyle. Um, yes, Camille. No, we're we're almost done with this chapter, so no. No, no, we're not doing that. Camille, you're already whining and pestering, so don't continue. Sorry, Camille. I'm talking to you. <laughs> She's like, what's up? Not whining. <laughs> um, Camille, my question really is: Does that does Harry Andrea get after her, Camille? Yeah, yeah. Bring you back to your childhood oh, when your mother triggering <laughs> a trauma response, and are you infusing essential oils to help you get over that? Yes, it's PSTD. <laughs> No, no, actually, it doesn't. It just it kind of makes me feel kind of homey when she's talking. <laughs> so funny. Um, so there's a trend right now that says um, there's like a hashtag and everything has been going around for you know a couple years old already, but it's called healthy at any size, and the trend is to help reduce the like body shaming and fat shaming and things like that. I think the hashtag could be re-termed beautiful at any size because I don't, I don't think somebody has to be skinny and tiny or anything like that to be beautiful. But I question the wisdom of us saying healthy at any size, because does that lead us to think then that it doesn't matter what choices we make? And this is a hard thing, I think, to address because it's so emotional, or for me it is anyways. And, um, you know, you don't want people to think that it's like, again, like I am resistant to any moralizing of food or saying like guilty chocolate or like, I don't believe food is evil or moral, morally good, or like, I don't it's, it's not a salvation thing. Like, I don't believe food has that power to be good or evil. Well, except the apple, right? But, <laughs> but it wasn't the food that was the problem. And I've thought about this in the, in the Garden of Eden, where it says, you know, Eve took the apple from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. It's not apple, it's a piece of fruit, but apple is an old archaic term that just means a piece of fruit. But, um, the apple itself was not magical or anything. I don't think it was Eve's choice that lent the power. You know, God could have probably pointed to any tree in the garden. But... Back then though, see how it all started from back then. Yeah. It, it yeah. Bad behavior got associated with food. It started. Yeah. Way no, way. it did. And of course it was pinned to us women as always. <laughs> you can make you can make an argument for every side of that right so there are lots of healthy people that are yes overweight i agree i agree shape i think any classification we put on anything like that is 
it's a no-win situation. Mm -hmm. no right I, I don't think there's any broad sweeping statement that we could say, which is why I would argue against the healthy at any size hashtag, because if somebody thinks that I'm only referring to a certain size, that would be false because you can, you know, look healthy and be extremely, extremely unhealthy. And your size has nothing to do with it. Your size is not playing into it. There is but so much look and healthy and be the healthiest person ever. You could yes, be the opposite. But can right? but can do I think that that changes the beauty of someone? No, I don't. To to me, the like that that doesn't even. It's not the same thing. I agree. Uh, so, like, have you ever watched a movie like? um Downton Abbey or something and there's like a character in it and you think like oh he's so just like horrible and hideous how could any why why is he like a hero you know and then by the end of the show you're like wow he is like such a romantic hero you know <laughs> like you know <laughs> the horrible hair doesn't factor in anymore you know you're just like wow he did he like sacrificed his soul for her like how romantic um so being somebody's soul as opposed to their right exterior. right my grandma has always told me about a story one time when she, we were, she was, when she raised her kids, she was Jehovah, yeah. Jehovah Witness. And so they would go like yeah. in service, you yeah. know, and like harass people at their doors. And, um, and then they would do Bible studies with yeah. people. So like they would go to people's house, like after they talked with them for a little while, then they would do work out Bible studies with them in their home. And she was like, this one man, we went in and we were stuck Bible studying with him and he brought his like fiance or something. And she was like, oh my gosh, she was like the ugliest woman I had ever seen in my entire life. What? I was like, wow, totally shocked. But then by the time they were done with the Bible study, she thought she was so gorgeous because yeah. her personality was so good. Uh, so yeah. and so loving. She was like, she got prettier by the minute <laughs> while we were talking. Yeah. And I always thought about that because I think that's so true. Like you'll, there's people... Like I remember when I I was in public school for, for third grade, second, third grade. Um, and there were these girls who were like the popular girls and they were gorgeous and all that, but they were, I didn't think they were pretty or anything. I just was so annoyed and sickened by them because of their behavior. So it really is uh, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just, the, the, I think there can be some of the trends. I, I applaud the trend of eliminating this, you know, um, body shaming because that just has no place in a healthy, um, a healthy person's relationship with other people. But I just don't, I don't want us to think that like, we shouldn't be sensitive to these things in our own, in our own life, because as we can see, they could they could play a role in you know how long we live or you know how many grandkids we get to see so um chemical exposure this is another thing and oh i see this in some mom groups where they're like you know stop with the you know non-toxic and and i feel like i feel like I, i'm i'm not going to be shamed for using these you know chemical th and you're just like oh my gosh like we're not trying to embarrass somebody we're not trying to like moralize your use of chemicals and make you a bad or good person because of it 
there's just some factors and things that will affect how long you or your children live or, you know, what kind of diseases we have to experience in our lifetime and our chemicals can play a big role in that. And again, it's one of those things that people can personally, and they think you're attacking their motherhood or their, by calling them out on it. And you're not, you're trying, we're trying to educate people so that they understand something that they don't understand, but they don't, they get defensive and then think that you're attacking. Well, and very few of us, very few of us, and I don't know if any of us on this, because I don't know everybody's history, but very few of us could say, I never used those things. Like we're not out here to throw stones, you know. We're and I also think that people for the healing with you. <laughs> people get really defensive about it because they know. <laughs> they know that it's not good. Um and they're probably feeling a little guilty about it, but they're like, but like all the all the evidence that people are like everybody uses it all the time and and like how why wouldn't they wouldn't sell it in the stores if they did all those things you know like there, there's all these things because i have had friends who I introduced it to and they they were just like wow i had no idea um well but claudia you were not defensive about that lavender oil you just you're like show me which one is the good one you you know you weren't like offended at me for saying that oil was bad and and, and I was not either when um, I had horrible essential oils, which I look back on them now. I'm, I'm like, those aren't, <laughs> there's no linen essential oil, you know? Um, but I, I don't know. I've had people who were just totally not offended at all. And they're like, yeah, I just, I just want to learn and I want to know, but I've, de- I've not myself encountered it personally that I know, it, but I've definitely seen people in the Facebook groups who are like, insulted and just tired of this, right. you know, this toxic mom shaming and shaming like who is shaming well, somebody? they're shaming themselves because they're yeah, going yeah, yeah, oh yeah, i do see yeah. this yeah, and my yeah. and like my subconscious is like yeah. that is right but they yeah. are like yeah. i they they want to take it because they they're not wanting to change their lives yeah. they're not wanting to make things better you know kind of like um somebody well, we know people um, find it overwhelming and they can't make the change so it's easier to say well that was me for a long time and for a long time I made every excuse in the book not to stop smoking even though I knew that I could die from cancer or emphysema or all these things but I made excuses right because it was easier for me to say no one's going to tell me what I can do than to actually quit because quitting was hard, right? So until you're ready. It is true. Nobody can tell you what, nobody can make you do or not do you, you know, we can talk about this nutrition until we're all blue in the face. No, none of us on here is going to be forced to do it. And none of us are going to guarantee you, you're not going to force your spouse to do it. That's not how that works. Nobody's going to make anybody do it. The, and, and the desire and the will has to come from the person Um, there. That that's kind of how the Bible talks about it, that, you know, you can, want somebody to you know believe in god with you or whatever but you can't make them do it at the end of the day you can produce all this great evidence or whatever you want to do somebody has to make the decision for themselves 
on on really everything um well now claudia has told us andy is a smoker now so we will be praying for him <laughs> um so for the chemical exposure and yes elaine for um a number of years i became increasingly aware of the fact that you know i there's people i followed who made like food recipes i liked and then i started to see them talking about other things like the material of their clothes or um soap and I was just kind of like I don't want to know I don't want to know because it was too much I was already trying to recreate food for myself and then it was just like there's too much for me to take in so I did have to go kind of in stages even though I, I I was aware that something was not right but I never felt ashamed then also social media wasn't as prevalent for me at that time in my life either. So it's not like I was seeing this stuff online all the time, but um, I do relate to that of not wanting to, not wanting to like try to take it in all at once. So recent research has linked chemical exposure and the use of man-made drugs to type two diabetes. There are studies that have linked dioxin, which is a deadly chemical in pesticides and the defoliant agent orange to diabetes. Another study links dioxin to the worldwide increase of diabetes in children. There is speculation that a connection exists between dioxin, obesity, diabetes, and body storage of chemicals in fat cells. You know, maybe that's something contributing to it being harder for people to gain or lose their ideal weight is because there's so much more chemical exposure in our life. Our body is trying to protect us from. Camille, what's the problem? Okay, well, can you show? Is it bleeding? Okay, why don't you go sit upstairs and play in two different rooms until I'm done? I'm never going to get off this page. <laughs> um, the side effect of some drugs for HIV and heart disease is diabetes. And those, Camille. Please go upstairs. <laughs> um, a study found that those who have gestational diabetes with a family history of diabetes and take certain birth control pills after delivery may triple their risk of developing diabetes later in life. There, that's why when, when we take medications, even something that you're told is just perfectly innocent, like a birth control pill, we have to be so aware that there are many, many compounding and unknown factors related to these things that may not show up. It's not like you're going to take the birth control pill and be like doubled over convulsing, you know, it may be something that emerges 40 years down the line that you pay for, you know, for the rest of your life. So, you know, when it comes to pharmaceuticals, we have to weigh very, very seriously the pros and cons and avoid them, especially things like um, birth control pills are very, very, very dangerous to the body. And remember, um, Elisa Viti has entire books and, you know, training um, courses that are like thousand dollars plus on recovering from exposure to birth control pills. It is something that once taken um, actually affects your body on a cellular cellular level for the rest of your life is not reversible so we have to be 
it's not i'm not saying it's um like gonna make you sterile or something i'm just saying it has an effect on the body that that apparently cannot be undone so um they certainly did not tell me that whenever i went to an ob nobody said anything like that they're like oh this is totally fine you know this totally this is, this is great this is a great solution you know don't have babies you're young <laughs> like, well, okay <laughs> um but nobody tells you like well they're there is a lot of dangerous side effects. Did you read those? And aside from those, there may be side effects that you will not see until your fifties. And then, then it's too late, you know, change your so mind. For me, when I, when I went in, it wasn't, oh, you know, yeah, here, this yeah, is fine. Yeah, yeah. You're young and healthy. It's fine. For me, it was, these are totally safe, completely fine. These are the things I have to tell you, but they're like the worst case scenarios and they never happen. And they made, they really yeah. worded it all like, you will never ever have to worry about this, but yeah, legally yeah, I have yeah. to say these things. Yeah, yeah. So for me, yeah. like it, I feel like it yeah. was like, I feel like it's no big deal. Yeah. Right. I feel like it was like yeah. sort of a manipulation. Yeah. Like maybe they weren't purposely trying to manip manipulate, but that's no. the way they worded it felt that way. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, I, know. Later on, I don't, I thought about it. Later, I was like, great. <laughs> No, no. And I don't look back and think that they were trying to like strong arm me into doing something or um, manipulate you. It just, it, it was something that I didn't end doing research on myself until later. And even now I'm learning things. So I'm just like, oh my goodness. Um, so it is highly unlikely that either genetics or environmental factors are the only causes for diabetes. However, a person, if a person has a compromised immune system or a genetic susceptibility, and then they're exposed to a virus or an environmental chemical or a drug, then the diabetes would be more likely to occur. So again, compounding factors. Um, Appendix S has more information on toxins and household chemicals. Now, I have a question for you guys. Um, there's still a few more pages left in this chapter, and we're actually at seven o'clock on the dot. We could just make the whole thing take longer. We could do diabetes again next week. And then um, we could do Elaine's class and then we could do the emotions or we could do diabetes again next week, then do emotions, be done with the book and then do Elaine's class. Either one would be fine. Um, what do you guys think? Rather than rushing through, because. Yeah, I, I think we should just push it out another week and I can just do the class after the book is over. It doesn't okay. matter. Yeah, we'll like, all be here on Tuesdays anyways. So it's not. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, then this is actually the first chapter that is making us go into two um, nights. And I think a part of it is because a lot of what you all have brought up tonight is the culmination of the whole book study to this point. You know, you're bringing in things that um, are, you know, socio and economic factors that have been mentioned earlier and it's all kind of coming together. So thank you all for helping me make this amazing recording.